everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been talking about my recovery from alcohol addiction since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, you may have noticed I've been gone for a little while. I took uh, a couple weeks off to go to a fantastic retreat at Kripalu, which is a yoga and wellness retreat center in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And uh, I was able to have the amazing experience of leading 33 beautiful women in recovery through a four-day workshop there, along with the amazing Peyton Kennedy of She Recovers. And we had an amazing time there. And I got caught in a very unfortunate storm on the way home that uh, had me sleeping on the floor of an airport and uh, on, the, on the airplane on the tarmac for hours on end where I managed to catch a bug. And as a result, I was too sick to um, talk or record <laughs> or actually do anything. In fact, so sick my husband slept in the basement for a week because he didn't want to come near me. So everyone is very happy I'm back to normal, including me. I will say the trip was worth it to uh, even catch a cold on the way home. It was fantastic, and I'm really happy that I did that and happy that I am back in action. And what a show I am coming back to you with. I have an amazing guest for you today. Now, you know when you meet someone and you think, wow, that person is really impressive. And then you look at their work and you're like, wow, their work is really impressive. Their Instagram feed is amazing. And then you say, hey, let's have a bubble hour chat. Send me your bio. And they send you your bio, and then you think, oh my God, this person has even more going on than I had any idea of. Well, that is the situation today. I'm at this sweet gal in L.A. at uh, the September retreat there. Her name is Heidi Ferrer. She's an amazing blogger. Her blog is Girl to Mom, very successful blog. She's got about 65,000 unique readers a month in 178 countries. Uh, her blog is fantastic because she is a writer of top-notch quality. Heidi's worked as a screen and TV writer, and um, she has had uh, input on some shows that I am almost positive that you have seen. Um, she's been successfully active as a screenwriter for over a decade. Her first Hollywood spec screenplay was in 1997, and that script was The C Word. And let me tell you, I'm thinking she must have been 12, 13 at the time. I don't know. Heidi will have to confirm that for me. Anyway, since then, she has sold an option to many original screenplays and has been hired to uh, rewrite other feature projects for studios, including Disney, Warner Brothers, MGM, and New Line Cinema. And in TV, she wrote for the series Dawson's Creek, among many other projects. Her movie Princess premiered in 2008 on the ABC Family Channel to 3 million viewers. It was a top-rated cable movie in that month, and the key demographics were women in frankly, the same listener group as uh, this show. And now, in addition to um, living a sober life and writing about it on her blog and helping other women stay inspired and find their way to recovery, Heidi is working on her first novel. Um, sorry, her first novel, Crooked Love, is available on Amazon, and um, she is now writing her memoir of addiction and recovery. So we'll be watching for that, and we're going to hear more about that now. And Heidi joins us from L.A., and she's going to tell us she's had a heck of a month. So the fact that she even found time for us today is amazing. <laughs> amazing. 
Heidi, welcome at last to the bubble hour. Thank you for your patience while I recovered uh, my voice to get you back on the show. Oh, my gosh. Hi. So I'm, I'm honestly, I'm so, so, I'm so happy that you're feeling better. That sounded extremely rough after such a relaxing, you know, retreat that you led at Kripalu, which I've heard is amazing that you ended up sleeping in the airport. You can't go to, to too many far ends of comfort and discomfort, right, <laughs> and getting sick. So I'm so glad that you're better. And I'm so honored to be here. Oh, I am. I'm really glad to have you here. It was really neat to meet you in person and um, and just learn about your work and kind of get to know each other a little bit and then dig in deeper online. And I don't know. I just love it when I discover a whole new you know channel of work that that um, that I'm is new to me and I get to just dig in and dig deep. So you've got a lot going on. Now, I know you're a listener of this show and yes. we were we were talking and then all of a sudden our our little robot that counts us into recording is like 5 4 3 2 1. So we were cut <laughs> off just as, as as I was saying to Heidi, do you have any questions for me uh, oh. before we go to air? <laughs> Um, but I know you know the show, and uh, and you know Thank that our you. format is basically we start by asking people to just tell us their story, and um, and so I, I know you've been through a lot, and um, yeah. and as I read your bio and think of all the things you've accomplished, you know, it really plays to the superwoman theme that seems to be common amongst a lot of us that that are in recovery is that you know we nearly killed ourselves working so hard and. And um, mm-hmm. our, our crutch became our worst enemy. But uh, yes. I, you know, that's what I'm guessing is part of your story. And I guess I'm going to turn it over to you right now and just ask you to, to tell us about yourself and about your relationship with alcohol, past and present. And uh, and then I'll have about 9 million questions for you about all the things you're doing these days. So, Heidi. Great. Tell us about Heidi. <laughs> Great. Oh, I'm uh, okay. Well, I I have a very dramatic story, and I just wanted to say from the outset that anyone who's listening, you do not have to have the low bottoms that I went through to stop drinking. You know, I think that's really really important because a lot of us we compare uh, when we we don't truly want to quit, but we kind of know we should. Uh, we compare and think. Well, she, you know, passed out in a mall, you know, for example, and had blackouts or whatnot. And that's not required uh, to be suffering, you know, from your drinking. So, um, so anyway, that being said, my story uh, is definitely of the double life of a drinking mom. And uh, I had low bottoms, but they were far apart. So sometimes, you know, months or even a year or years would happen between the lowest bottoms. So for me, I was able to kind of go back into denial and say, that was a mistake. You know, I didn't eat. I was on a medication. You know, that's not going to happen again. And clearly, I'm going to be able to get this thing under control. You know, so denial is a huge part of my story. And also uh, relapse, relapse recovery. So... Something bad didn't happen every time I drank, um, not even a hangover every time I drank. So um, that made it tricky. Uh, I was a champion in denial and lying to protect my drinking, as a lot of us are. 
Uh, and I want to say that if anyone hears this, because I've never told my story publicly to this um, degree, if anyone hears this whose children came to my house, I was a volunteer at my son's elementary school during my relapse years, and uh, I went on field trips. And to be clear, I never put any children in any danger whatsoever. It was sort of strange that I was able to kind of control it to a degree that I could stop when I knew I had something important coming up. You know, if I knew I had to go to a field trip or something, I would, I would taper down my drinking and be completely sober and clear and fresh as a daisy on that day, you know. Uh, but it didn't always work out, you know, as well as I hoped. But in those cases, thank God I didn't drink and drive with children in the car or anything like that. Uh, so I was a binge drinker. I was a taperer. And towards the end, I could drink um, – on a very bad week, a binge week, I could drink 40 drinks in five days, and uh, then I would gradually taper off and cut back. Although I was never, uh, I was never physically addicted to alcohol, and I've read that only like 10% of people uh, with severe um, alcohol problems are actually physically addicted. Uh, so I, I never had the DTs or that type of withdrawal, but I did have really crazy incidents where I was in a blackout and I would hallucinate other people in the room. I mean, really extreme stuff that not everyone goes through. Uh, so I was uh, enabled by my husband who was always home. And as we were writers, uh, I always had someone to drive. So I wasn't really a drunk driver. Uh, and my, I always had another adult who was not an alcoholic um, to watch our son if I was hungover or, you know, God forbid day drinking as I did sometimes to self-medicate and self-medicate the hangover. So uh, I think that kept me drinking longer. I think if I hadn't had my husband at home, if he had been at work full time or if I'd been a single mom, I don't know if it would have carried on for as long. But uh, I heard a quote recently. Oops, I just knocked out my little earpiece. Uh, And this really, I think, puts it very accurately and succinctly. Drinking was magic, then it was medicine, and then it was misery. And so I'll just go back to the beginning and quickly run through sort of my my main uh, points of my story. Uh, I was a very sensitive child, like hypersensitive and thin-skinned and very self-conscious. And I described it to people that I felt like an alien impersonating a human. And I've since learned that that is just um, something that can be described as sort of an orchid child versus a dandelion child. And the idea is that an orchid child needs just the right conditions, but they can thrive. And they're very sensitive to light and to water and things like that. Whereas a dandelion, you know, no one's better than the other, but a dandelion might be able to survive uh, growing through the cracks of concrete, for example. (laughs) So uh, my parents' divorce um, was when I was 10 years old. I grew up in Kansas. And uh, after my parents' divorce, my dad emotionally and physically abandoned us. Uh, I was the middle of three sisters, and it was at that formative time of, like, the preteen years and the teenage years, right when you really, really need your dad, you know, right when you are starting to discover boys and grow into that sort of, into puberty, and uh, it was a terrible time to be abandoned, and that gave me the mad little lie that I later realized was the core of my drinking. It was the core trauma that told me that I was not enough. And I was somehow not worthy enough for my dad to love me and to be in my life. Um, So 
then when we moved, my mother moved us away out of Kansas to Louisiana, and I changed schools three times from sixth grade to eighth grade. Every year we changed, I changed schools to a different community, and each time I was bullied by girls. And so that created, uh, by age 13, the last time it happened, I was a social outcast for an entire year at that school. And we had moved way out to the country, outside New Orleans, and it was a village, technically. It was called Folsom, Louisiana. And uh, so I was extremely isolated. So that gave me, like, extreme social anxiety from that point on, which is really a survival thing because it's, like, fear of being, you know, like the Eskimo putting someone out on an ice floe to die. You know, I really felt like it was like life or death. And at 13, I got drunk for the first. I got invited to a party in a van with a boy, and I drank to, I think, to blackout the first time I drank. And he tried to have, you know, have sex with me, you know, in, in his van, and I threw up on him. <laughs> and he drove me home. And it was gross, but... It, to me, it was okay because the experience of being drunk was so euphoric. It was such an incredibly good feeling to me. And I even told myself at that time that it had saved me from losing my virginity to this guy who was a virtual stranger to me. So in a way, I even thought that the alcohol, excuse me, the alcohol had saved me, which, you know, just begins the denial there. You know, you can tell I'm an alcoholic right there. So that went on to uh, drinking uh, to kill pain, emotional pain, physical pain, anxiety, social anxiety. It was like a superpower. I suddenly felt like I could go to parties, and I developed I, – I got friends after that, and I could kiss boys and talk to boys. And this was like the best thing that had ever happened to me. Uh, so – from that point on, when I was 16, there was a low point. Uh, I went out in the French Quarter with my friends, and I was drinking in a bar, and I, I left with a man. <laughs> I was underage, and he was a grown man, and I left with him, and I was woken up. I passed out in a public hotel on the bathroom of a public hotel in the French Quarter. So 16 years old, I was woken up with smelling salts by the paramedic. And uh, the cops arrested me, and they mistook me for a hooker, and they took me to Central Lockup, which is the downtown New Orleans jail. And I was crying hysterically, and mascara was smearing down my face, and I had lost my shoes, and I had torn my stockings, and I told them to call my mother, and they didn't believe me that I was 16, because I was tall, and I was all, you know, tarted up, as they say. And uh, they finally ultimately believed me. But um, that was maybe one of the first, like, real crazy bottoms that happened to me. And it didn't stop me drinking. I didn't question my drinking. I just felt like it was an accident. You know, maybe I was drugged by this guy. Like, I didn't know. So I continued on. Uh, when I was 18, I moved to Los Angeles to pursue my dream of being an actress and to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And uh, at 18, uh, my grandfather, my, my paternal grandfather, so my father's father, invited me to dinner, you know, as his granddaughter, and he made a pass at me and tried to have sex with me. And he had said several things in the course of the evening leading up to the pass that were so bizarre, like saying that the Bible says incest is okay and things like that. And 
I honestly was so naive. Like, I just didn't believe that could be possibly what this, you know, elderly man who was my grandfather meant, you know. And uh, But when he put his hand on my boob and he tried to stick his tongue down my throat, you know, I realized what was happening, and I fled. And my father didn't believe me, so that was another another trauma. You know, we have all these these traumas that build up, and it's partially why we drank, at least in my case. So in my 20s, um, nothing really major happened. I had intermittent blackouts. And uh, my, I would have fights with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, because we've been together since we were 22. And, you know, I'd be horrible. You know, I'd, like, throw something across the room, and uh, he would tell me about it the next day, but I would have no memory of it, and he would forgive me. So uh, that went on through my 20s. Um, as I got into my late 20s, my pain um, from what I, my cramps, my period cramps, which I later found out were endometriosis, um, were very, very severe. They had always been bad, but they were getting worse and worse and, and kind of terrifying. Uh, so I developed this fear of physical pain. And someone told me, and up to this point, it never occurred to me that you could drink by yourself. Like, never would have even thought of it, you know? And uh, someone said, you know, if you have cramps, you can just drink two glasses of red wine and they'll go away. And I thought, oh, I can really do that? You know, like that's a thing. And so I tried it the next time I had cramps that were like, you know, at noon or something. And it worked. It relaxed my cramps at that time. You know, it got my endometriosis got worse after that. But so it started to, I basically developed, you know, this idea that alcohol cures everything, <laughs> you know, like it's just a cure for everything. So I was a struggling uh, actress that didn't really pan out. And I had always been good at writing, but I didn't think writing was a glamorous profession. So I ultimately heard about the screenplays could sell for a lot of money. And I loved movies so much. And I, so I studied romantic comedies because that's what I, um, I really loved. And I was self-taught. I and mean, when I say I studied, I mean I studied them, you know, on, on my own, the ones I could find in the library. And uh, at, at age 27, I sold my first screenplay, the C word, for uh, $300,000 uh, to Fox, and 20th Century Fox, and producer Ar- Arnold Popelson, who had was an Academy Award-winning producer for Platoon. And so I went from, like, basically having no health insurance, you know, sort of, can I curse on here, crappy jobs, um, their hands to mouth, you know, really bad apartment, a car that was falling apart. And suddenly I had money, and I was, like, one of the, the toast of the town kind of it girls uh, in the literary uh, area of Hollywood. People just loved that screenplay. And so uh, – that led me to um, celebratory drinking, you know, and also the fear of suddenly having money. I came from a single mother after the divorce uh, who was on food stamps, and I had holes in my shoes, and we didn't have a lot of money. And so I had these money issues, you know, in my brain. And so suddenly I had this money, and people were really nice to me, and I was really in fear of imposter syndrome is what they call it. I was in fear of losing it and being found out that somehow I was not worthy. And that goes back to the unworthiness thing, you know? So that led into uh, my thirties, cocktail culture. We had, we had money going to bars, hanging out with the boys. I was the cool girl who would go to the strip clubs with the guys. I drank to do everything to feel more comfortable. I began day drinking to shop because I felt like I didn't deserve to be in those upper-level stores. 
and I thought people were judging me. And so I would drink, I would mix vodka in a water bottle with like emergency as like a health beverage. And, uh, and then I would eat cheese, <laughs> like a small piece of cheese because it was a diet, you know. So that's how I sort of like kept my blood sugar from crashing with the cheese. Because it turns out I'm hypoglycemic, which is like great for um, people with alcoholism. So, um, so that was kind of my thing. Um, I found myself in my 30s really lying and beginning to hide drinking from my, my husband. We, we got married um, five days after 9-11 was our wedding. So uh, that was another significant drinking point because – because of 9-11, all of the planes were downed that week from, like, Wednesday on, and nobody could fly to our wedding. And we had saved our own money for nine years of being together to pay for our own wedding. And we were spending $80,000 on the wedding, which was all pre, prepaid and pre-charged. So uh, suddenly our mothers were not going to be there, and, and I was just um, a, a shaking mess, and my family was not oh. going to be at my, my wedding, in addition to the whole country falling apart. You know, like it was just a horrible, mm-hmm. horrible time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I drank a martini on the way to the hotel uh, to check in for the wedding weekend, still not knowing if my family was all going to even get on the planes to be there. And uh, that worked. You know, I drank that martini, and my hands stopped shaking, and I, I was not a drunk bride. I, you know, had a beautiful wedding, and it all came together like a, a miracle. And um, people were so grateful that we went forward with the wedding because it was about love, and they needed to see some joy and happiness at that terrible time. And so, again, drinking had worked, you know. So I had all this evidence that it was constantly helping me despite, you know, these these random blackouts. So... So I'll, I'll jump ahead. Uh, I passed out as the maid of honor at my sister's wedding, which is really a cliche. That was in my mid-30s, and my family was very angry with me. And, again, it was self-medicating, which uh, my story is full of, for social anxiety because I was really nervous about giving the toast, and I really blew it for my sister, um, and she has forgiven me. But I had to be carried out of the wedding uh, by the father of the groom and my husband. So it was humiliating, but it didn't stop me from drinking. Um, Then uh, I had my baby. I got pregnant at age 36, um, and I had him at 37. When Bexton, my son, was four months old, my dad committed suicide by gunshot to the head, and he never met my baby. And so... People who've suffered a loss um, due to suicide know that it's a very specific type of grief. And uh, I was already in some postpartum depression. Um, I had had preeclampsia in my pregnancy. So uh, I had had a, um, an emergency C-section, and my baby was only 4 pounds, 13 ounces. And he, you know, he was very tiny and almost had to be in the NICU. And so I had trouble nursing. So there was all this stuff going on and like, baby blues, and my body was still healing. And suddenly I went into, I spun into grief with my father's suicide. Um, I went into a bit of a depression after that. And a few months later, my first movie um, came out in theaters and was one of the biggest bombs ever in like the history of film. Uh, it was called The Hottie and the Naughty. And after 10 years of like this successful career, uh, my screenplay was like rewritten by the director and they cast Paris Hilton as the lead 
And they thought at the time it was a good bet because she was really famous at that time. She had the most Google results of, like, anyone on the Internet. And uh, we didn't – the producers who cast her didn't know how much people really hated her and did not want to support her in a film, you know. And the movie didn't come out great. I mean, it was not the the script that I had written, but it was still devastating nonetheless because that was just – Boom, boom, boom. My son was born, postpartum, my dad's suicide. Three months later, the movie bombs. And people said on TV, on like Ebert and Roper, um, that everyone involved with the movie should be shocked. Mm. And for this sensitive person, that was so devastating. It was so devastating. And uh, a few months after that, when my son turned about one, he was diagnosed with a rare form of scoliosis that can be potentially fatal in babies and young children. And uh, that uh, was so terrifying because within six months of that diagnosis, his spine had gone to 64 degrees. And if you, if you went on my blog under Bexton's story, it's one of the tabs. Um, It's girl2mom.com Bexton's story. You can see a picture of his x-ray and it is shocking. And you can see exactly why I developed PTSD as a mother from seeing that first x-ray and onward. And they couldn't tell us that he would be okay. They couldn't tell us for for years we didn't know if he would lead a normal life. And we had to find the treatment to save his spine through a Google search. And literally by the skin of our teeth, it was a single mother found this treatment in the UK and helped bring this treatment, which is a a series of body casts, like plaster casts, that go on their torso, but they're put on under full anesthesia, under traction on a specialized table. And the only place that did it anywhere near us, and we're in California, was Salt Lake City, Utah, at Shriners Hospital for Children. So it was so crazy that no one in L.A., these best doctors in all of the West, with the best health insurance we had at the time, which was the Writers Guild Health Insurance, we could have gone anywhere. Any one of these doctors in L.A. would have ruined his life, like literally. So uh, we took this risk, and we went to Shriners, and I'll just cut, cut ahead to say that he's doing amazingly now, and he's, his spine has basically been saved. Uh, we're, we're 10 years into that process. But it was 22 out-of-state medical trips for that, and he was under anesthesia, full anesthesia like 14 times, including the three MRIs. And uh, so, so it, was, it was terrifying, and it was an ongoing trauma. So um, I was not going to stop drinking during that. I, I continued to drink. I never drank at the hospital. But, you know, I had a lot of hangovers, you know, in those days. And I was a good mom, but I was absolutely underwater. You know, emotionally, I was struggling to stay alive you know, and I had this beautiful baby, his body cast, and I couldn't hug him without the cast. You know, it didn't come off. It's not like a brace. And mm-hmm. he couldn't bathe. You couldn't bathe your baby, you know. It was just really horrible, but they literally saved his life. So um, it was the right thing to do, and, and you had to get those casts on um, starting under age two with this progressive condition because the human spine grows 50% by age two, and it's really harnessing that natural rapid growth that is the key. So, okay. So now that happened. Um, and that exceeded my ability to cope at the time. Um, 
so one year after my dad's death, and now we're into my son's, you know, scoliosis um, diagnosis, um, I dipped my toe into AA because, as people know, in grief, often the anniversaries of death can make you feel re-traumatized, you know. And so my father's um, first anniversary, I was drinking really heavily, and uh, so I went to AA for the first time. Twelve steps. <laughs> it's okay. I said that, but they won't, they won't send the police. Um, so I went to a meeting, and uh, so I stayed for um, I stayed sober for a month, and I went to about two weeks of meetings, but I really wasn't ready. And someone hurt my feelings. Someone was like really rude to me, uh, and I left for three years. So I continued to drink for those three years. No major incidents happened, uh, but a lot of problems and. Uh, Seven years ago is when I really um, clocked that I came into recovery for real. And as you can see, since I have almost 11 months tomorrow, um, I didn't stay sober during that whole seven years. But I was in recovery, and in my opinion, uh, it was not consecutive. But it altogether, it was years of recovery that I was actually sober. And to me, it all counts. I really do not believe that you completely start over your spiritual growth um, every time you relapse. That has not been my experience. So uh, the last time that I drank, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I need to cover this, a couple other things here. Okay. So basically uh, I had an incident um, seven years ago. What brought me back in seven years ago, um, I was on Lexapro for the depression that I was going through from my son's um, scoliosis. And I suddenly went off of the Lexapro. I came into the program of 12-step recovery. And two months in, it was uh, December, and they had all the Christmas music playing. And my son and husband were out for the day. And I got that crazy little thought that maybe I could have, like, one glass of wine because it was so festive. (laughs) It was such a festive idea. And I started drinking around the clock. And for four days, I went off of the Lexapro, which was really, really bad for me. And I, the Lexapro made me very unlike myself. Uh, I started flirting inappropriately with other men online, which I had never done in 20 years of my relationship. So it was completely out of character for me. Um, I went to the mall drunk. I bought a puppy at a, a store in the mall and for $1,500. And ultimately, I was arrested by the mall cops uh, in a blackout. I had gone to check into a hotel so my husband wouldn't know that I was drinking because I was drinking at him, you know, because he was trying to control me. And uh, I was arrested by the mall cops, which is funny, I know, but also, you know, just so sad. And uh, they passed me over to the LAPD, and the police brought me home. The police did not want to take me to the downtown jail because it was at the Grove Mall here in L.A., which a lot of people know. It's an outdoor mall, and it's kind of midtown, and downtown, um, the downtown jail would have been the one to take me to. And they said to my husband that they did not think that I would make it out of there safely because it's like the Skid Row jail. So I don't know if they thought I would get a traumatic brain injury, you know, maybe in a blackout, somebody would beat me up. I, I don't know. Um, but I'm so grateful to the police for doing that. They really saved me that, that night. 
Um, and by the way, I just want to mention, I realize that's probably white privilege. You know, if I had been a woman of color, I don't think they would have taken me home or, or probably not. Um, so I did finally, after several days, agree to go to rehab. First, I said I would go. And then I, I went to, I found out that they were going to take me, my husband and my, my then sponsor. And I went to the liquor store and drank a whole bottle of vodka. And I ended up hospitalized um, at eight times the legal limit uh, at a 0.5, which is a fatal level for most people. And uh, my son was four years old, so he could have lost his mother that day, right before Christmas. And uh, I've heard that Amy Winehouse was a 0.4 when she died, so it was an incredibly dangerous level that I was, I was at. Um, I finally went to rehab after sobering up from that, and uh, I was in rehab for three weeks, and I checked out early. But it turned out that the rehab I was in, just by the way, um, was run by a criminal. <laughs> and I had a good experience there, but he's in prison now. His name's Christopher Batham. And there's a whole story on him with like 31 or 32 counts of criminal acts, including uh, raping some of his patients. So I was very lucky that I got out of there without something worse happening. Uh, so I was hospitalized two other times, uh, once at a blogger conference when I was alone in New York. I was drinking in my own hotel, and I woke up in the hospital. So I, I passed out on the street, street apparently alone, and uh, – had like the shape of a sewer grate in a bruise on my hip from that fall. And I woke up with a cop at the bottom of my bed, and I didn't know if he was there to arrest me because I really didn't know what had happened. Uh, I was hospitalized another time. Um, these were not close together. These were like a year, two years apart. Uh, another time I was hospitalized in L.A., I again passed out in a mall. So after that I started drinking at home. And my husband did finally go into 12-step for, um, you know, Al-Anon. And that really, it, it helped me to at least not feel like I was drinking at him because his behavior towards me changed dramatically. And it, it, it gradually be began to improve our relationship. Um, so there were a lot of dangerous things. I did a lot of drunk cooking at night. Um, my husband, thank God, is a light sleeper, but I would drink and cook at 3 in the morning, which is incredibly dangerous. And I was a bitch, you know. I just want to add that. Like, a lot of women have this experience, you know. In a blackout, I would say horrible things, but sometimes I would just be really sexy, and you never knew, like, which wife you were going to get. So, you know, I put my husband through a lot through all of that. Um, and I call it, you know, they say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the, the change in behavior um, from sober to drunk for a lot of us. And uh, so I joke that it's Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Heidi. Uh, so <laughs> right, that should be the title of my book. But three years ago, three, three and a half years ago, still, there's more dramatic stuff to go, but it's almost, I'm almost wrapping it up. Um, three and a half years ago, my husband um, – it came out by accident that he had some financial uh, betrayal in our marriage. Uh, not sexual infidelity, but financial infidelity. And that can be really, really serious because, of course, it's trust. You know, it's a matter of trust. And I don't want to go into the details of that too specifically because we're still married and I do love him very much. Uh, you know, it turns out that during all the time that I was drinking, he had kind of a reason to keep me sick for a lot of the time. 
because it kept me from asking questions. And I always felt like I was kind of the person in the wrong. And I was always the person doing something quote unquote bad. And it turns out that, you know, he had his own issues as well that, you know, we're healing from. So, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that with codependency, they get something out of it too, that there is a, can be a controlling, you know, factor. Um, so, but I love him. I do love him. And he knew I was going to talk about that today. So that's fine. Um, and then when the smoke cleared um, and our relationship healed after that betrayal, uh, six months later, I decided to try drinking again because he was okay with it. You know, I mean, he, he was trying to support me and I know he wants me to be happy. I do not blame him for my drinking, uh, but um, definitely it was enabling. So, uh, and I wanted him to enable me. Absolutely. I enabled him to enable me. So I, my last relapse, though, bringing us up to this sobriety, um, was last Christmas. I went to my sister's, my family's Christmas uh, in New York State, and I drank once I was there. I was not planning to drink, but uh, I did. And for the first three days, my family didn't really say anything and I don't think my behavior really changed dramatically till day three but on the third night um, I picked a fight with my husband and I think it was everyone had kind of gone to bed the kids were thank god in bed it's a massive house and the, the kids were in a completely different sort of wing so they luckily didn't hear anything but I ended up screaming at my husband and cut to the chase I'm sure that he told me to stop drinking so much you know like drunk people really don't want to be told that they should stop drinking you know and so um I woke up my sister it was humiliating I do I have no memory of it it was a total blackout but the next morning I woke up to the horrifying story that my family knew and that my sister the hostess the first year in her new home with her family, she and her husband had been woken up with my screaming at my husband in the middle of the night. So you can imagine just absolutely humiliating. Um, my family staged an intervention the next day, and uh, I call it Christmas intervention. It wasn't ideal in the sense that, you know, things were said that were hurtful, and it, with a moderator, I think it could have been calmer, you know, and, and not quite as painful. But the bottom line is they love me and they wouldn't have done it if they didn't love me. People who don't care about you don't hold an intervention, you know, and I'm so grateful to my family for loving and supporting me. And uh, I'm so lucky that my son's Christmas wasn't ruined and he didn't even know that I drank on that holiday, you know. So um, I got sober again. My sober date is New Year's Eve 2017. And what is different for me is that um, I really believe that sobriety is a better life. I really now am doing it for myself. Before, when I got sober because of my husband's betrayal, I thought we were divorcing, and I thought that I had to be sober to get custody of my child. And that was enough of a reason for me to stay sober. But when we stayed together, that, you know, led me to drinking again. And I believe that's because it wasn't for myself because I really didn't do it for myself that time. So um, I'm not leading a double life anymore. Also, I'm, I'm out <laughs> as a sober person on Instagram. I came out on Facebook, which is where the, you know, my worlds collide 
all of the women and moms and dads that I know from the scoliosis groups are on Facebook with me. I didn't want them to judge me. I didn't want them to know. I didn't want the other parents of kids my son's age to judge me or know. And I just had to let all that go. I just had to let it go and recover out loud. And it's not for everybody. I realize that. But for me, I had to do it because of the double life that I was leading. And I'm blogging about my sobriety for real, um, which I've never done before. I tried it once during the while I was in rehab, but um, I, it was way too early and that was a mistake. So I, I waited quite a long time to really be ready this time. And, uh, and fear of judgment almost killed me. I mean, it really almost killed me. So for me, being out um, is really important. And uh, so that brings us up to now. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) And I know that that, that's why I'm, I mean, that was the edited version because it's so hard to tell every single thing that happens, but it's amazing what you've been through in in a way it, your story reminds me of two things. It reminds me of how strong the spirit fights to survive despite, you know, trauma and pain and heartache and betrayal. Mm -hmm. And it also speaks to how hard addiction fights to survive despite all the efforts or all the goodness and good-heartedness that we have. Um, Both of those things, you know, in equal, in equal measure. And yet, um, uh, and yet the, you know, the right side won, thank God. And, and you're in it to win it now. Like, I mean, I think even though you went through so many, um, I don't want to say you went through so many relapses. It's almost like you were walking up a staircase or something. Like, And I feel like it does take yeah. that for some people. Like some people, I was one who, I might have stopped and started a million times like on a daily basis, but like when I quit, I quit. Mm-hmm. But for a lot mm-hmm. of other people, the trauma, I think, and, and maybe their life dynamic, just it keeps bringing it back into their life. And you know, you can just only do so many times before you get dizzy and say, okay, enough of this. I don't want this anymore. Um, so I'm, yes. I'm really grateful for your recovery. And you have a lot on your plate, you know, with a, a, a son to raise, and you have a lot of good things on your plate. So now you can, you can give your whole heart to them and know that you deserve all the good that comes back your way. But I wrote a page of questions as you were talking and gosh there were so many times <laughs> there were so many things i wanted to just interrupt you and ask you but i i really wanted to hear all your story in one piece and then come back and and talk to you about a, a few things but you know i want to talk a little bit about the fact that you're a very sensitive person and i feel like that is what makes us good writers is when we're really sensitive because it allows us to see things from a lot of different perspectives and maybe internalize emotions that aren't our own and it you know there's a lot of good side a lot of benefits to being a sensitive person but um i'm curious about that incident you know you said you went to aa and you had a couple months of sobriety and um and then something didn't sit right with you you know something that someone said and and sometimes Mm -hmm. in those settings or in you know in any setting but um Sometimes people do what they think is helpful, which is giving you a little bit of tough love or um, saying mm-hmm. something to you that really worked for them, and they're like, this is going to hurt, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And um, and maybe it doesn't work out the way that they intended. 
Um, but I'm wondering now, as you as you look back on that incident with a little bit of time and recovery and self-awareness and insight and healing under your belt, um, how do you see that incident now? Do you feel like if you were in that same position today, you would respond differently? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, what happened was uh, it was a young woman and I was being introduced, one of the first people who said hello to me, the first person who reached out her hand to me, said, I said, this is my first meeting. And she said, she was quite young and she had five months of sobriety. She was like in her early 20s. And she said, uh, I think you're very brave. And I know I'm still Facebook friends with her today. And I, I've always remembered her, even through all my relapsing. You know, that's how important that is. You know, yeah. and yeah. even though I didn't get it right then, you know, uh, but she introduced me to another friend. And at that time, there was a thing amongst the young people of like insulting you in order to make you say, hey, you don't think I'm going to make it well F you, you know, and it was yeah. sort of a trend. And so she said, you don't know fucking anything because you're a fucking alcoholic. And I was literally paper thin with my sensitivity. I was paper thin. And I just thought, I just fled, got in my car, cried all the way home, and made a decision to do it on my own, you know, which didn't really work out. <laughs> but that, that's how sensitive, you know, I think newcomers to sobriety are. And uh, now if somebody said something like that to me, I would still think it was completely inappropriate. And nothing like that has ever been said to me ever since. <laughs> so I don't want that to scare people, you know. So, Yeah, it sounds like it's an unusual incident that happened, but also, like you say, it might just be cultural or something too. And, um, yeah. you know, with, within that group of something that kind of, like I said, like maybe someone said that to her and it was like, it worked for her, so she tried it on you. But right. I feel, too, like, you know, there's there's two things. There's one thing is that, like, everyone else in that room is someone who's sick and trying to get better, so they may not have the best judgment, depending what kind of day they're having. And, right. and then our addiction, I wrote this down when you first started talking, um, our addiction listens for differences, and yes. our recovery listens for similarities. So our addiction, it's like we have one on one shoulder and the other on the other shoulder. And, um, oh, I wrote that down when you were talking about having a low bottom and not comparing, you know, for listeners not to compare their bottom to yours because it doesn't matter. Everybody's different. It's whatever wakes you up in that moment. But but when you said that, I wrote down that addiction looks for differences because it can leverage that against you. You know, I'm not like her or I'm not that bad. Oh, you can keep drinking. You're not that bad. Um or yeah. those people are mean. We're not going to get better with them. And and yet recovery, this is what I've learned, is that since I've been healing myself these last many years, that the voice in my head that wins, that, that gets the most mic time, is the one that is like, oh, okay, I could see that. You know, I, oh, I, I, I can see what we have in common. Oh, I might not do it that way, but I see what she's going for there. And um, yeah. That's to me when like recovery really starts getting a toehold is when is when it um 
is when this when you start looking for similarities. So as a sensitive person, that's easy enough to find <laughs> as well. So when you yes. when you see other women now, and you live in LA, um, beautiful mm-hmm. place full of beautiful people, but also my feeling when I go there, and I'm a Canadian country girl here, so I'm pretty I'm pretty down to earth. And when I go to LA, I feel like gosh, I feel so much pressure there that it must be hard to live there sometimes, especially in the entertainment industry, because there's a lot of superficiality that becomes normalized to there. And then mm-hmm. the pain that people really feel is sort of even deeper hidden than maybe in the normal world. So as a sensitive person, how do you respond to that? When you when you see someone that you know is hurting or that maybe is displaying something that you've recognized, do you reach out to them or what? how do you respond to that now? Yes, I, I absolutely try to. I mean, thank, thank goodness, the meetings that I go to are so loving now. But I just want to, uh, this is important to say, uh, I have been to thousands of meetings over the years. And so I have a lot of overview. <laughs> and, you know, the people have hurt me. You know, people have done things that hurt me. Um, but not the program. The program is is not the people. I mean, it is the community and the people that make it special and bring the magic. But you have to be able to separate uh, what you can get uh, from recovery meetings. There's an expression, take what you want and leave the rest, you know. And I strongly agree with that. If there's anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, you can go to another meeting. There are online meetings. You don't have to do meetings. Everyone can have their own way to diversify their recovery, and I have no judgment on that whatsoever. Uh, but the point is that, you know, there, there's people who will rub you the wrong way and hurt your feelings because it's just like any group of people. It's just like if you're on the subway. It's just like if you're in a mall. <laughs> you know, there's going to be people whose personalities you wouldn't like so much maybe perhaps. But I have experienced so much incredible beauty and uh, just unbelievable grace. Uh, through the people who are working on themselves in these programs. You know, I mean, these are people who really are trying to grow. They're trying to be better. And sometimes, you know, you'll get someone who's maybe not grow, hasn't grown so much. <laughs> but, you know, uh, my current mentor, you know, sponsor is amazing, and she's, she's helped me so much. And the ones that I've had prior to her, you know, they helped me all in their own way. There's some magic that I've taken from all of them. And, you know, my first sponsor, by the way, um, is the one who took me to that criminal rehab. She worked for that guy. And you know what? I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think right. that that is 12 steps. You know, she's one person. And she may not have even known at that time what he was up to. You know, so I can't know that. Um, I'm no longer in touch with her. I don't go to the, you know, the same meetings. But anyway, um, you know, that's the point. Take what you want and leave the rest. And what do I do? Um, I absolutely I do try to reach out, and I find that at the loving meeting that I go to, like my home group, um, people are surrounded, you know, like somebody will get to them before you, and you're just lucky if you can even get a chance to talk to them, you know. And and we attract uh, the people that that are drawn to us, that need our help, and and that's the beauty of of putting our energy and our story out there, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So you kept going to 12-step meetings. So were you, in all the years where you were kind of in and out of recovery, was, was going to meetings part of that, or was it rehab that got you back into 12-step, or where, where did that come back into your life? You know, uh, my experience, uh, just my experience, is that rehab was really important to separate me from the drug of alcohol at that point. And to separate me from my family so we could get a little therapy because I was so sick at that time. Uh, but rehab didn't get me sober. You know, I drank for two months after getting out of rehab. And uh, doing the 12 steps didn't give me a psychic change. I've done the 12 steps three times. They are all, I, I believe the 12 steps were extremely important to my personal growth and for taking inventory of what I did, what I felt, what I felt people did to me, what my part was in it. But uh, personally, I, I really caution people at looking at things as character defects. I think they're personal growth opportunities. <laughs> and non-alcoholics have, you know, personal growth opportunities abound for them too. So right, I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in the language of positivity, although I love 12-step and what it's done for me. If there are things that I don't like in, in the wording, I put it my own way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So 12-step mm-hmm. um, so has saved my life, but it took a village along with 12-step. So, but the people in it have saved my life. It's also been you, po- the podcast that I've listened to over the last several years. Uh, absolutely books, you know, especially um, sobriety memoirs have been extremely uh, meaningful to me. And going way back before I even identified as alcoholic, I, I was learning from them, you know. It's a continuum of, I feel like, uh, I get a lot from, uh, I, I read sober blogs. Um, inst- sober Instagram is amazing. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's so supportive. And, and I love my Facebook groups, um, and I want to mention that if anybody is interested in the secret sobriety Facebook groups, many of them are women only. Uh, I don't know if we can say their names here, but I can certainly um, direct you to one or add you if you want to send me an email. Um, I'd be happy to, to let you know where they are. But they're very supportive. And I feel like when I post something in those groups, um, I, it's just like a share at a meeting and sometimes I even get better advice on the groups, you know. So yeah, I just yeah. I think there's a magic to in person, but there's also a magic to us connecting, you know, from all over the world. I agree. I think it's a really useful patch on the patchwork, um, especially for yeah. women. I feel like we, you know, we sort of intuitively need another level of support and another place to to sort out our feelings in language and. Um, and a community in life in person is like the bomb it's it's it, i yeah. feel like everybody needs that even a little bit but um uh it's such a good supplement um to have mm-hmm. some of this online stuff is just and sometimes it, it sometimes it works in reverse like sometimes people go to a recovery group of some kind of and there's lots of different ones out there um, yeah, and get started on on sobriety through that, and then add online groups to, to kind of help build their recovery on top of their sobriety. And sometimes it goes the other way around. Sometimes by joining an online group, there's lots of people that join that they're <clears throat> what we call sober curious. You know, they might still mm-hmm. be drinking, yeah. but they're there to um, 
to learn about what it's like to be sober and to ask their questions and to be in a safe place where they can sort of it's an earlier stage of of um, decision making, right? It's sort of in that inquiry stage, that curious stage, and gathering your information before you decide what action you're going to take. And very often, I think the courage to walk into a meeting, knowing that it's a safe place and a loving, supportive place, not a judgmental experience like so many of us thought it would be. I really had no mm-hmm. idea that that was how things were until I joined online groups and really got to see people talking about their their groups and just it's sort of like lifting up a rock and like getting to see what's underneath you know like just a peek into people's private thoughts and lives that we don't get to always hear out there in the world I mean there's only so much time that we have to talk to other people and it's hard to get that deep that fast and in those online groups they really do it's amazing so if our readers sorry if our listeners wanted to connect with you and ask you about the groups that you recommend or the secret knock to it how would they find you Heidi you can uh, send me an email is probably the best way Uh, girls to mom g-i-r-l-t-o-m-o-m at gmail.com and I'll send you a list and, and I, can, um, t- I can add you, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And then um, tell us a little bit about – I have more questions for you, but just since we're talking about how sure. to find you, let's talk a little bit about your blog and and how people can follow you on social media as well. So your blog is girltomom.com, G-I-R-L-T-O-M-O-M.com. And on yes. Instagram? Instagram, I'm at recover. So it's R-E-C-O-V-H-E-R, like recover, recover, but with a her at the end of it. A true writer loves uh, a good play on words, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know what? I'm trademarking it because uh, after I was using it for a while, someone told me they wanted to use it for their business. (laughs) And I was like, no. (laughs) Brother. (laughs) I know. Um, So I applied for a trademark. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm watching the clock wind down All right, I'm going to scrap my last few questions So that I can ask you a little bit about the work that you're doing So, uh, your first book is called Crooked Love It's on Amazon And it's the story of your young son's um, experiences with health Is it an autobiography? biographical story or is it um, sort of a fictional story based on that? Crooked Love is a novelized version of our our true medical experience and I wrote the end of it well you know what I'm not going to say that I don't want to give anything away um, so it's, it's a dramatized uh, I wrote it um, from the perspective of a single mother because I knew a lot I know a lot of single mothers who are going through the scoliosis journey uh, with this rare form of scoliosis in babies and young children. And I, the woman who helped save my son, Heather Montoya, she was going through it as a single mother. And so she's the one who started the nonprofit that led to the cast um, coming to the U.S., the Meta cast. So, uh, so that, that's why I, I, I did it from that perspective, uh, a writer's, you know, uh, decision to make it even more dramatic. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, so that's, that's what it is. It's a novel. And, uh, and yeah, so I'm I'm proud of that. And you're currently working on another book. Um, 
I'm I'm writing a book right now, and I hate it when people ask me about it because, <laughs> because I don't even know why. It's like just trying to describe my own stomach contents or something. I don't know. It's like oh, I don't know. You'll see it's it so when hard. it's done. <laughs> but it's shall so we watch hard. for that? I, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Um, yes, I I this is it's sort of it. I I've been writing uh, my memoir of alcoholism during the years of my relapsing. So it's my whole story, uh, and I would put it aside once I started drinking again. So it's really, it's like in, in during the during that I was writing it. And now I'm, of course, rewriting all that stuff because now I have the perspective that I have. I have about 300 pages, and it's going to be um, what they call, call quitlet. <laughs> quitlet, an alcoholic memoir. Yeah, and Cheryl Strayed said, Cheryl Stay said you should call it my gnarly alcoholic memoir. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to call it that, but for her, I, maybe I should take the advice. Um, oh, can I give you a can I give you a quote that I just I wanted to make sure I get this in there because I just thought it was so good. Um, yeah. Drinking to feel happier is like setting your house on fire to get warm. Mm. So I just. What I've come to believe and what I really do believe intrinsically in my bones and my soul and my spirit uh, is that it was a lie. You know, I sold myself a lie. And it's also very, you know, it's also in our brain chemistry, um, we teach our brain that it's a survival skill, that alcohol makes us feel better, it makes us feel happy, it makes us survive our lives. And all of that time, it was a lie. I was always capable of surviving my life and being happy without alcohol. And in fact, it is a hard job to be an alcoholic. It is torture. It is alcoholic torture and suffering. And we have to be so incredibly resilient to keep coming back from that, you know. And I have that resilience. That's me. <laughs> you know, I am incredibly resilient. And so the point is that um, now I just, I just believe that sobriety is a better life. And that is honestly a click, a decision, and the decision that sobriety is a better life is available to you at any moment, you know, and that was always available to me. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, you had it in you all along, and uh, it took me a long time to really make that click, but it, it was always there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now this capacity that you have that was spent on being resilient and surviving can be spent on producing and enjoying and put in a whole new direction and helping others, frankly, because that is what you're doing right now by sharing your story, by choosing to recover out loud and to help others. I mean, I just feel like it's a redirection of your energy in a, in a much better way that is, is amplified, you know, it's, Oh my gosh. Yes. I I knew, you know how you know something so deeply, but you fear change. I've known, I've watched y'all, you know, beautiful women from the sidelines uh, for years while I was drinking and relapsing and drinking and relapsing and listening to your podcast. And I knew I should be sober because I knew that I couldn't be the best version of myself until I was, you know, but I was afraid. I was so afraid of judgment and I was so afraid of losing my medicine. You know, I thought I needed yeah. it to survive. And that's, it's a lie. You know, I didn't need it to survive. Alcohol is a lie. Uh, and I just want to also add that, you know, shame, fuck shame, right? 
I mean, I have no shame about my past because all of that was, all of that is my journey and I have no judgment on anyone else's journey and I have no judgment on my own. You know, for some reason I had to go through all of that and you know, I, I hope and pray that no one else has to. I hope maybe this podcast will help someone else not have to go as far as I did. But honestly, uh, I just, you can just drop the shame, too. You can literally just drop it. It's too heavy. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. don't believe in it because it's destructive, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it doesn't serve us in any way. I no. mean, so what are we dragging that around for if it has no purpose oh, yeah. and no use? Um, what it does serve is addiction. I mean, it goes back to addiction is looking for the differences. Addiction is looking for the negative so it can leverage it. And that's, that's it's looking for shame. I mean, addiction loves exactly. shame. So it's exactly. important to, to uh, be done with it, banish it. <laughs> banish well, it. We, you can just drop it. And it's no good for your kids either or, your, or the people who love you, you know. It's true. Yeah, that is true. And I feel like that's really important too is the effect that it has on the other people in our life. It's it's like tar, you know. It's it's a sticky residue that mm-hmm. just it doesn't it doesn't help. Um, last question before I let totally. you go is just you've said some very encouraging things for other listeners. Um, if you if we could do some kind of like time loop thing, and if the Heidi that used to listen to this show and think about getting sober were listening today, uh, what? What would you say to her that you knew she needed to hear? Oh, my goodness. I would say that you are already forgiven. Forgive yourself. Forgive everybody, everything. Cannot carry resentment because it only harms you. You know, like they say, it's the famous line, drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you forgive everybody, everything. And also acceptance is the answer. Accepting what is, accepting what happened in the past. And that's over. Like literally, we are already in the present. You don't have to do anything to be forgiven. You are already forgiven. And that literally sobriety is a better life. It's just a better life. Thank you so much, Heidi. I'm going to leave it there with those wise words. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Listeners, you can find Heidi's website. It is girl2mom.com. You'll find her on Instagram at recovher, R-E-C-O-V-H-E-R. And you can message Heidi at girltomom at gmail.com. And don't forget to go to Amazon and look for her first novel, Crooked Love, and uh, put a star by her name so that Amazon can let you know when her next book comes out. Heidi, thank you so much for being on the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. It's my honor. And, Jean, thank you for all you do. You're so gorgeous inside and out. And we just um, thank you from people like me, your listeners. We love you. My my (laughs) pleasure. It's my honor. I will pick up the phone and and keep phoning people and asking them their stories as as long as there's people I can find to talk to me. So I'm I'm honored to do it and I'm glad to know that it helps. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yay. Listeners. Uh uh keep an keep an ear out. I'm going to be in Mexico next week at the She Recovers yoga retreat in Mexico. I'm hoping to do some recording down there and piece together a show from you 
from there, but if not, it might take me a week to get back, and uh, so there may be a week lapse before the next show comes on, but I've got lots lined up for December and January, even now booking into February, so never fear, there's more to come. That's it for this time, everyone, so until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me. 